0: Welcome, everyone. It's time to get started. Uh, this is uh, the Tools for Data Analysis and Visualization session. So if that's not where you think you are, uh, go find <laughs> go find where you're supposed to be. Memo? It is not, no. Um, my name is Ryan Cordell, I'm one of the, the Mellon Fellows. I have a ribbon, so if you want to talk about that at some point, please track me down, and I will <laughs> do my best to enlighten you about that. Um, I'm really excited about the session. I'll be introducing folks, and then we have uh, Meredith McGill, who will be our respondent um, for the panel. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce everyone just before they go, so that we don't lose track of who's up speaking. Um, And we've got everyone speaking for about 10 minutes, and then uh, that will give us lots of time for discussion at the end, which is what we're hoping for out of this session. So we will start with uh, Catherine Desplanc. Did I get it? Fantastic, okay, who is a Carolina postdoctoral fellow for faculty diversity in art history at UNC Chapel Hill She is a specialist in 18th and early 19th century French graphic satire, visual culture, and art worlds I'm
1: not texting I'm gonna time myself I will also be. Okay, [SSSSSSR] good. [SSSS] I'm going to do, we'll do, we'll both work on it. Okay. [SSSSSS1] Um, So, I want to talk to you today about a research project. I'm basically telling you about my dissertation project slash book project um, and the software that I used as an augmented personal research tool. I want to emphasize that because I know most of the presentations today are much larger team based institutional projects, and this is something I've been able to do individually, and then I'm going to explore scaling up with institutional support, <laughs> um, but this is something that you can do at home. Um, so I'm coming from a background of art history and visual culture studies. Um, I'm interested in looking at images in high volume, but being able to still have very intimate encounters with every individual image. I don't want software computers to read them for me, but I do want to use that software as an accountable note-taking tool, as I've said here. Um, I'm currently using qualitative data analysis software, QDA software. This is a type of software used frequently in the social sciences and in market research. They often use it to deal with interview transcripts, the products that come out of a focus group, for instance, and to try to conduct structured research with qualitative data. I found that I was able to use this very easily for humanities and art historical project without needing to jury rig the software to do what I wanted it to do. Um, I also should disclose I'm a research advisory board member for NVivo. I was invited to this role after working with the software for years. I get nothing financially and only a little bit emotionally out of your investment. (laughs) 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 No offense. (laughs) Um, I want to introduce my research project to you so that you understand uh, where this is coming from. This is my dissertation title, I can't wait to never see it again. Um, I worked with... um, I ended up finding 486 images that, pr- that were the central corpus. I've, I have two I need to add to them. Um, the central corpus of this dissertation that looked at satirical images of artistic life in Paris between 1750 to 1850. Um, many people advised me to cut down this, this number to try to work on a narrower period, but I really wanted to try to devise a methodology to be able to work meaningfully with this volume of work and to say something about what they did in the aggregate Um, and to be able to dive into exceptional and ordinary examples of that 486. Can everyone hear me in the back? Sort of? I don't know if this, is it sort of on? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll see how far I can lean into it. Um, So I'm probably half being picked up by the microphone now. All right, so those examples of satirical images of artistic life in Paris would include images that satirized creators, of artwork, painters, sculptors, architects, images that satirize experts and critics, audiences of these artworks at public exhibitions or in other private um, venues, images that satirize those patrons, buyers, and art dealers, those who are involved in the art market in any way. And another category, a little bit more ephemeral, of gatekeepers, arts administrators, judges, very important events within um, the life cycle of an artist and their kind of cursus or career trajectory towards success or alternatively, failure. Methodologically, I was interested in taking a sociological approach to these objects, of considering them as items of criticism and satire of an artistic field and um, objects that, that were able to kind of tell us something about the way in which um, uh, the category of art was assigned or labeled to certain objects, the category of artist was assigned to certain individuals um, who played a role in deciding this and and how, um, um, how these decisions were being criticized and monitored. Um, methodologically, I was interested in using these objects as a, an opportunity to bridge cultural approaches um, to the art world with social approaches to studying um, the art world within my discipline of considering how discourse and structural relations uh, mapped onto one another. I found that the way that I could do that with this corpus was primarily to consider evolutions of artist typologies over time as they were satirized. This is a kind of uh, vague schema of some of my findings as I considered the ways in which the painter primarily um, and their representation changed from political regime to political regime across these objects. The challenges in conducting my research with with these items is that almost none of the items I studied had ever been individually catalogued. So in hunting them down, I also needed to produce a catalog of them for the first time. I did what the French like to call a depouillement, an exhaustive search. This is an example of the last time the BNF took stock of of how it organized its collections in 1895. Um, I love working in that collection, but this is just how it is. Um, And so I would need to kind of funnel down through that collection, identify likely places my images might be, and go through them exhaustively and lift out the images that I was interested in, which was um, really fun actually. And then I produced a catalog along the way this is the mess that came at the end of my dissert, my research abroad. I had a folder full of images, I had a Word document that was more or less useless to me that had bibliographic notes mis- mixed in with annotations. You're all nodding, we've all been there, and it's, it's <laughs> terrible. So, uh, pragmatically, I was not able to write my dissertation um, or work with these objects meaningfully. I started to realize that I needed my um, I needed my data divided into these three major categories. I wanted bibliographic information, annotations, and my images to to be separated from one another. And I really roamed about to try to find strategies for doing this relational databases, the museum system, and we can discuss some of those perhaps um, separately. But I found that in vivo could... Um, could deal with these three types of information separately, but also understand that they needed to be related to one another. I could find everything back through each other. Um, They translate this into the the vocabulary of sources. You can import almost any kind of source into the software. Um, You can produce um, a classification sheet that uh, associates this kind of objective description of your sources to the sources themselves, and then there are mechanisms for annotating them. And let me show you what those are. And so I produced a classification sheet in Excel. I could import it into the document. I could import my sources into my NVivo project. And because they shared a file name um, quite precisely, they would be um, immediately related to one another and could find one another back through them. And I could create a tagging structure that could tag specific regions of the image, which was very helpful to me because in tagging these images, I found things that I hadn't noticed for years, um, hidden in the margins of them, that I might not be able to find back in three years again. So I'm glad that I can see that region highlighted. So I crafted my own kind of um, image vocabulary thesaurus. I didn't borrow from Getty or from the Library of Congress. I created my own and was able to tag these and have that information (coughs) organized hierarchically, which was really vital to me. In the next slide, I'm going to play a video that I've recorded of me kind of navigating through the software. Normally I give this talk in an hour, so I'm really stressed out giving it 10 minutes. Um, And so you'll see a video in the background and I'll try to narrate over it and you can see how I'm able to access back my images and run queries on the images in the aggregate um, in the software. Um, So what I'm doing here, firstly, is I'm showing you the classification sheet that I produced. Um, I'm showing you that I can um, that I can create this custom classification sheet which was very useful to me that could accommodate the different ways in which I might wanna create a, a catalog for a lithograph versus <laughs> intaglio prints, for instance, and I can jump to the source that that's correlated to through the image or through the classification sheet itself and open it up and view it in the software. Um, I can tag a region of the image. I'm gonna tag the bicorn hat for you here and I've already inputted my node structure, as they call it, and so I can really search my node structure and keep my data um, clean. Um, I've appended that tag, and I'm going to take you to my node structure itself, and click down and show you that I can load up all of the objects that I've tagged to a certain node. Um, I think I'm going to show you the shop sign painter, that's usually my favorite. Um, And then I can have them displayed to me as a gallery, and so I can do more work on them there in that way and have my shop sign painters highlighted for instance. So These are all different ways that I can find back my objects. Um, I can also find them through queries and I'm going to show you some queries that I've saved and I'll run a query here for you as well. Um, For images, I like running matrix queries where I basically define the parameters of a spreadsheet, um, columns and rows. So I'm going to show you for the Ancien Régime and Empire slash Restoration, the instances of my, and I'm probably going to show you a shop sign painter again, um, because I'm thinking about them a lot right now. So we're going to look at the shop sign painters that appear in those periods. So this is how I can go back through the tagging structure I've created. Um, and interpolate it in these more refined ways. This is live to my information, to my data, so I can open it up into a gallery view again and view another customized gallery of those shop sign painters that I've coded for the Ancien Regime. Um, and if I decide I want to present this information in a different way, which I did do in my my dissertation research, um, I can take this, um, this and I can preview, for instance, um, a... Uh, a bar chart, and it's just going to keep looping. And I think that that is really all I have for you today. Um, I was going to summarize a few other things here, but I think you've been able to see everything um, that you need to see. So thank you for your time.
0: Thank you, Catherine. So next, we are going to hear from Alessandra Panzanelli and Matilda Malaspina who are members of the 15th century book trade project led by Dr. Christina Dondi at the University of Oxford. Let's see. Oh, Alessandra's field of research uh, are history of the book and libraries with a focus on scholarly publications. Matilda is a PhD student. Uh, Her research concerns 15th century printed book illustrations with a focus on Italian illustrated editions of Aesopian texts.
2: Good morning, everybody. Matilda and I are very happy to be here to represent the 15th Century Book Trade Project. This is a five year project starting in 2014, funded by the European Research Council and led by the University of Oxford by Dr. Cristina Dondi. This project aims to make an assessment and visualization of production, distribution, and reception of the books printed in the 15th century. In short, to provide a scientific basis for rewriting what has been called the printing revolution. Evidence is found in the books themselves. Two databases have been created in order to explore the distribution and reception of books, MEI, material evidence in Incunabula, and the cultural and economical context in which books were published text ink. Scientific techniques have been applied to these data which allow to visualise the movement of the books over space and time. The project is also working on the study of illustrations, about which you'll hear from Mathilde in the second half of this paper. We are working on the first 50 years of printed books. Today about 30,000 editions survive in at least one copy. About 450,000 copies are preserved in approximately 4,000 4, institutional libraries. Bibliographic data is taken from the ISCC, while typographical information comes from GV. MEI. In order to show you how the project is collecting data on copies and text, we have chosen different editions of the same work, Aesop Fabulae. This is a copy of the edition printed in Verona in 1479. It was once owned by King George III is now in the British Library. Here you see images of copy-specific features such as the King's monogram, the British Museum's stamp, but also early manuscript notes and the colouring of the woodcuts. All of these are clues for provenance. In fact, in MEI, all evidence is transformed into historical evidence by interpreting it and by tagging it geographically and chronologically. In this case, manuscript notes and decoration are the earliest clues for provenance and are anonymous. But also bibliographical and documentary evidence (laughs) is used. The book was bought by King George III from Joseph Smith, and we know it from Smith's catalogue only then the King's ownership follows, and then the BL, which is the current institution. The current institution is always the last provenance. NEI is a collaborative project. More than 300 libraries and more than 100 editors, both librarians and scholars, are working in in EMI. The latest statistics tell us that more than (coughs) 27,000 copies of 10,000 editions have so far been recorded. Now, to illustrate the database devoted to texts, we have chosen an edition which shows very well how many different texts can be found in a 15th century book. Here, in fact, his fabulae appears in a translation from Greek into Latin by a famous author, Laurentius Valla, along with other fabulae written in Latin by a contemporary author, Laurentius Abstenius. (laughs) Other texts have been added, verses on the title page, a prefatory letter, from the contemporary author and the prefatory letter by Valla, the translator. <coughs> well, in Texting, we record all these sections by transcribing the incubate and explicate of each textual unit. We identify all indec- and index all the people involved, author, secondary authors, translators, etc., and provide a brief description of illustrations so as to highlight the role they play in the transmission of the text. Texting has taken over from body ink. The database has now grown to more than 8,000 editions. Data recording in MEI and in Texting is used to visualise the movement of books and therefore of text. The software has been created by Professor Min Chen and Dr Simon Walton at the Oxford E-Research Centre. Here we see the BL copy of Aesop's Fabulae along with all other copies of the same edition that have been recorded so far. On the right-hand side, there is this inspector that shows us the data pertaining to all former owners. From the results of a general search pertaining one edition, we can focus on one particular copy, such as the BL1, and follow it from Verona, where it was printed, to London, where it is now. A video has been produced and is accessible on our website, where all this is explained in further detail.
3: So I am the one obsessed with Aesops and it's my fault if you will be hearing of Aesop for another couple of minutes. Um, so in 15th century printers' business, uh, woodblocks were a fundamental part of the capital as much as types, paper and the press itself. They had an economic value, they could be loaned to other printers, they were exchangeable and they were marketable. In this context, it is very common to find narrative episodes illustrated with images which have almost nothing to do with the text, or to have the same image reused by the same printer within a very small number of pages to represent two different characters or again cases in which the same wood block as in this case is used to represent different <coughs> scenes in completely different edition so this is the, the case where um, this block which was used for the first time in manfredo bonelli's 1491 edition of aesop's fables to represent the fab- the fable de mulle musca was then um, copied uh, by um, a few years later by a different printer to um, illustrate this popular edition um, about some <laughs> contemporary, like, chronicle events, um, and again, uh, cases of copies. Um, as it appears here when a printer from Bologna, Ercole Nani, produced an almost exact copy of Bonelli's edition of Aesop in 1494 in which all images are reversed and the image borders are divided into four different uh, segments rather than being um, printed from the same block of wood. So these cases uh, raise some questions. Uh, Questions which relate mainly to how uh, these images circulated, how did printers use the images, and how the iconographic tradition that they convey moved from one place to the other, and from one edition to the other. Um, The aim of the 15th century book trade project is not to solve all the above questions, but to offer a methodological approach and digital tools which will allow more scholars to address these questions in an effective way. And this is why we created a tool for cataloging and searching early printed images, which allows scholars to combine the possibility of searching images through their visual features only, and the possibility of searching them (laughs) using (laughs) metadata as query fields. As for the first point, this is a demonstration of searching from a software based on automatic object retrieval technologies uh, that was devised for us by the Visual Geometry Group, which is based at the Faculty of Engineering Science, um, University of Oxford. Um, so this is a reproduction of leaf A1 recto of the Vitae Zopi, printed again by Bonelli in Venice in 1492. Uh, the image is identified through a sequence of number including the ISCC number and the MEI number which refer to its very precise location in a certain copy of the mentioned edition. To discover where else and how many times and in combination with what else a certain wood block appears uh, and was used, I just have to select the, the desired portion of the image such as in this case and click search and it will give me back all the cases and all the occurrences of this woodblock in the same and in different editions. The main goal of this tool is to match the query image with a certain number of other images contained in a given data set and to align the results uh, of the query in order of similarity. This is extremely useful as it allows us to track the reoccurrence of the same block in different editions and within one single edition. And this ultimately helps us understanding better each printer's equipment and its printing practice. The image metadata search, on the other hand, um, gives us the possibility of tagging images with some kind of metadata, which can then be used as query fields in a searching interface. Here you see a sample of the categories that we use to tag images. And here you see um, a screenshot from the um, (coughs) image annotation tool that the visual geometry group devised for us. uh, And which allows us to tag each uh, cut, each different cut which is part of an illustration with different metadata without having to physically separate the image. Uh, This metadata which are assigned accordingly to the description scheme I showed before can then be used as query fields in a searching interface. system is being designed to allow um, remote contributions as MEI was so that a large number of scholars can collectively annotate a preset repository of images according to a given description scheme all the work done by the 15th century book trade project in the past four years and this coming year will be presented in the exhibition printing revolution and society 1450-1500, 1450-1500, 50 Years That Change Europe, which will take place next September in Venice, and you're all more than welcome to join us there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're all heading to Venice. <coughs> you <Thank>
2: should. You. <laughs>
0: um, so next we will hear from uh, Elise Graham who is Assistant Professor of Digital Humanities at Stony Brook University and a Society for the Humanities Fellow at Cornell University.
4: I am texting. Uh, I'll be the first person ever to live-tweet my own talk. Um, All right, this is a description of a history of science project that I'm developing with my colleague Robert Kreese, um, and it also gets into issues of narrative and database. Over the past few years, research carried out at large-scale material science facilities in the United States and elsewhere has undergone a phase transition that has affected its character and culture. In this talk, I'd like to briefly describe this phase transition, review the practical challenges it poses for historians, review some potential digital tools that might respond to these challenges, and then suggest some theoretical challenges posed by the emerging field of database history. What we might call the Old Big Science was born starting after the Second World War with the creation of national laboratories. The primary dynamic of the Old Big Science was that the scale of its premier high-energy physics projects, instruments, collaborations, and the time scale that projects followed, increased rapidly. In the new big science, instruments and collaborations do not get bigger and bigger. Instead, the research ecosystem grows more complicated. And this, uh, this paradigm started in the 1980s and entailed in part a shift to material science. That ecosystem involves more and more fields making use of national laboratories, uh, a wider variety of instruments, more connections between seemingly disparate research programs, and a faster turnover of programs. Research in the new big science differs from research in the old big science in the scope and complexity of its research networks, which can simultaneously involve several national labs, several universities, and several industries. The formation of knowledge in this research culture is also different. Instead of research projects addressing single puzzles, materials scientists often work to pull together a mosaic of properties whose focus may change rapidly with the properties of the materials being produced. That description brings me to the focus of this paper, the challenges of telling the story of such a research ecosystem, and the opportunities that digital tools and methods offer for meeting such challenges. Consider the traditional methods for investigating the research ecosystem at a science facility. The time-honoured tools that a historian can bring to such a research project are diverse but narrow, confined to the length of a book or article he must choose one or a few currents in the full ecosystem on which to focus. For example, he might choose to track a machine's operational history, its administrative history, or its functional history. He could focus on the publications associated with each Porter Research Program, the personnel associated with each Porter Research Program, the instruments associated with each Porter Research Program, and when they were built, rebuilt, or replaced, the funding in the form of prizes, grants, and other funding sources associated with work associated with each Porter research program, the industries associated with each Porter research program, (laughs) the historical map of research programs at the NSLS, how long they lasted and how long they were funded, or the applications of research findings. It's our argument, however, that narratives and lists of this kind are of little value unless they're connected with each other. So essential is interconnectedness to the new big science that traditional historical methods, which can follow only a few threads at a time, cannot adequately account for the functioning of this research ecosystem nor explain its achievements. This mode of practicing science can only be fully understood if connectivity and interdependence are placed in the foreground of the historian's attention. Because of the singular dependence of any one factor on an entire ecologic environment, even very basic and traditional questions about the new era of material science are difficult to answer. For example, what biological science is happening at materials science facilities, and how has this science evolved? More detailed questions are still harder. What are the connections between specific kinds of biological research in other fields like physics, chemistry, and engineering? How have these connections evolved over time, and how are they related to the evolution of broader social concern about health epidemics and so forth? These are interesting and important questions, not just to science historians, but also to scientists, administrators, funding agencies, and policymakers. As it happens, we too live at a moment characterized by transformation in our forms of knowledge production, defined in part by new tools that facilitate the rethinking of research objects in terms of uh, connections and relationships. In particular, these tools include the relational database and a growing humanistic concern with database use, an orientation that new media scholars have begun to address as database thinking. The best way to introduce the specific challenges of database thinking is to summarize the goals of our current project, which takes as its basis the National Synchrotron Light Source. The NSLS was a historic site for groundbreaking research in materials science from 1982 to 2014. During that time, it was one of the world's most widely used scientific facilities. The NSLS is anchored in Brookhaven National Laboratory, and is managed on behalf of the U.S. Department of Energy by Brookhaven Science Associates, of which our home institution of Stony Brook is a partner. The machine spins electrons in a circle so that they give off light, and then reaps the light through several dozen ports. At each port, instruments shape the light so that it can be put to a range of tasks, such as studying materials via electromagnetic radiation. In terms of research, the NSLS is one of the most productive instruments ever built. The vast number of experiments that took place at the NSLS, and the vast amount of data that it produced during a history that encompassed many and changing disciplines, make it nearly impossible to gain a comprehensive global view of the knowledge production that took place at this facility. Traditional historical methods and linear narratives fail to capture precisely the elements that demand new exploration. We're therefore collaborating to develop a kind of digital tool to uh, to capture the history of this research. The project will comprise a digital archive to obtain a history of the NSLS, the main component of which will be a relational database that allows for a wide range of forms of query and analysis. It's a traditional digital humanities project in the sense that the project aims to demonstrate that new kinds of digital tools can help with challenges of information overload by storing, integrating and imaging the large amounts of information needed to answer the questions we may ask of a complex ecologic environment. However, these tools also pose a new set of problems historiographic problems that concern the relationship between the domain expertise of the historian and the design of a relational database. As the creation of historical databases becomes an increasingly common practice, we have a growing need to articulate principles for the design of digital tools that will support the kinds of analysis and discovery that we've traditionally valued as historians. For example, while one benefit of using databases is supposed to be freedom from the limitations of received ideas, a notion that Wired magazine memorably publicized by heralding big data as the end of theory, (laughs) scholars such as Ted Underwood have reminded us that our digital research tools rely, however invisibly, on a range of pre-existing narratives and assumptions. Moreover, as research objects in the digital humanities become more complex, we have a growing need to articulate principles for the design of digital infrastructures to support the management of new volumes and configurations of data relevant to humanists. Here, as with thick description, the deliberate negotiation of framework persists albeit at layers sometimes invisible to the user <coughs> call it deep description. So for the closing 2 minutes I would like to focus on a specific problem associated with the question of how to write the 3 minutes history of the new big science taking place <laughs> at the NSLS. Specifically I wish to focus on the question of database history as a genre. Mm-hmm. The problem in historiography that this germinal archive is designed to address lies in the narrow and linear structure of most historical narratives. But databases carry historiographic problems of their own, and actually Meredith McGill has written on this subject. While the structure of a database evades traditional narrative elements such as sequence and fixed order, a database designed by and for historians may still capitulate to narrative in the sense of the embedded logics of the discipline. Does the design of a database, whether in the configuration of the user interface, the selection of its contents, or the indexes that manage its workings, limit the stories that emerge from its contents in a way that would be uh, problematic in the terms that Ted Underwood has described in his criticism of algorithmic research? The limitations are unseen to the people performing the search who think that the search process therefore has no limitations. A related question is, would the involvement of human agents in managing this database limit or predetermine the uses that will be made of its contents? This question regards the database as an analogue not to a book, but to a journal, like Annals, Representations, or uh, Années Sociologique, which not only curated scholarship, but also famously nurtured distinctive schools of practice. Because the field of history and the schools that comprise it are under the control of a professional community of historians, the information structure that grounds a historical database will reflect a necessarily partial, and perhaps even political, set of interests. In other words, can there be any kind of database other than a politicized database? Early answers to these kinds of questions suggest probably not. But, since this feature is part of what makes a historical database, as an artifact, evaluable as a contribution to the discipline, it may well be worth thinking about how we might foreground it and embrace this inevitability as an opportunity. If database thinking entails thinking in terms of classifications and relationships, then the integration of database thinking with historiographic thinking represents not an end of theory, nor, in a term that was famously applied prematurely to our postmodern technological society, an end of history, but rather an extension of the historiographic tradition into the materially grounded, practice-based domain that Matt Rado has called critical making. Thank you. 30 seconds to go. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what, I think, here's what I think of the
0: last episode of Game of Thrones.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Good
0: job. Good job. Didn't even get to my red card. <laughs> it's one of the joys of moderating, uh, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so we will next hear from Rebecca Hankins, who is an associate professor and a certified archivist and librarian at Texas A&M University. <laughs> 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 her research, <laughs> her research uh, intersects with her pro- professional work that centers on the African diaspora women and gender studies and popular culture as it relates to <coughs> Muslims and Islam
6: right. Thank you So uh, as you can see at the bottom I have my Twitter and uh, the other collaborative uh, partners our Twitter accounts so feel free to tweet a- tweet away So um, this is a project that was funded by um, Texas A&M's research, Division of Research, and it is a um, proof-of-concept con- project um, that was funded by PESCA, and the individuals who are part of that project are uh, Amy Earhart, me, myself, uh, Maura Ives, um, and Sarah Potvin, and as you can see, we all have different roles, but we were all co-PIs on this particular project. Some of our major contributors were Nick Le- Leacona who developed our uh, database, our, um, the database that we used to um, enter our data, and we had graduate students who uh, assisted us in putting together and uh, even much more <laughs> important was uh, one of our colleagues who digitized all of the materials that we um, needed for this project. So the basis of our project really was to diversify the digital canon. And um, Amy has written quite a bit about that in terms of of how so a number of groups Um, people of color, women, the LGBTQ community has been left out of much of the digital canon. And so this project was hoping to um, uh, explore and to really bring uh, these other literary um, jewels back into that canon. So what we did was we found that bibliographies allow us to you know, bring back that cattle uh, that to to really get us to um, develop tools where we can show the um, value of this literature, and so that was part of our argument. We wanted to, um, you know, show what materials are out there that we don't see as often enough, and show that they are just as valuable valuable in terms of, of their um, content. <coughs> so we what we wanted to do was, um, again, transform these printed bibliographies, and I'll show you some of those, and I'll talk about why these particular bibliographies are important and, and how they also show um, that there's other works out there that we really need to start exploring in this particular area. So we started with two bibliographies and two bibliographers. In both cases, um, they were very, they were taking very assertive roles. Um, They were trying, they were very active in developing these bibliographies. Um, The first one was a librarian archivist um, Pretty much considered one of the um, mothers of the um, archival, uh, especially when you're talking about black bibliography. Dorothy Porter Wesley, she was at Howard University, um, Moreland Spingarn's collection, and she wrote pretty much uh, quite a bit on the contributions of African-Americans. And she was working in an area uh, in the 1940s, 19 from the 1930s really to the 1960s and 70s, um, talking about the value and trying to make sure that African-American works were included in the canon. The other individual works we are using is a professor at The University of Illinois, he is considered what we call the father of what is e-black studies and he was a traditional scholar of black literature and um, he developed this whole notion of e-black studies where um, he really felt it was important to, not so much to uh, include black literature in the canon, but to develop our own canon. So these this is some of the works we used in our project. And as you can see, uh, both of these individuals were um, traditional. They had traditional bibliographies, uh, unique features in their b- bibliographies. and we wanted to um, show, Uh, In in particular, in um, Professor Al Kalimant's works, they range from uh, calendars, dissertations, while um, Dorothy Porter Wesley stuck basically to books and articles, but he included a wide range of material. And so we wanted to find a way of uh, digitizing this material and putting it in our tool And this is more about uh, the collection that Wesley had at Howard. And these are, these were the newsletters that we digitized. They were from 1983 to uh, 1991. They were very complex uh, information that we had to digitize and so what we did was we tried to map out the structures of each of the bibliographic citations. We needed to uh, consider how we wanted each record to be developed and then map um, the uh, taxonomies onto that, which we developed these uh, pretty elaborate taxonomies for the students to enter. So the students entered all this data into our um, our tool, which was created by, (laughs) out of the Neo4j um, uh, project. And so these were some of the structures of that data and how we collected them and how they were to enter the information. So we had, if this happened, if something shows up or if there's some uh, individual or place or something, they, they knew where to put this information. And this is have only got one of our um, graphs, but each of these nodes um, are supposed to tell you how many works were done by an individual, what places they were, so you could pull out that data and find out if this individual's name is there, where are other works by that individual, where were they doing that works, where were conferences, where were um, theses and, and dissertations written. So it was supposed to uh, include these elaborate connections, and all of this data from uh, the bibliographers. bibliographies were included. Now, these were some of the outcomes um, from our project. Again, it was a proof-of-concept project. So the most important thing for us as we started was how we were going to assign credit, how we were going to work together as um, all of us were... uh, faculty. And so how do we assign the credit? So that was one of the first things we did was set up our rules of engagement and we continue. That's why on all of our works we include everybody's names. We uh, talked about the value of ha- having student participation. is was important to us. Um, one of the things that we, uh, I guess, ran into was It was so much data. How do we develop um, projects so that they are meaningful? And so we've we've been talking about developing smaller projects. And one of the things that that I've been talking to other uh, scholars about is what would be of value and so one of the things that i'm looking at is how we can pull out black conferences um, the various conferences and where they were located during this period and try to develop a gis mapping project out of that we need to create more robust visualizations and that's something else we're working on in terms of the tool we're also working on grant applications we're developing um, scholarly articles about this and presentations like this. So I can gain feedback. Thank you.
0: Hey, thank you, Rebecca. Our last uh, roundtable participant will be Dot Porter. As the curator of digital research services in the Schoenberg Institute for Manuscript Studies, DOT participates in a wide-ranging digital humanities research and development team within the context of a special collections department. DOT's projects focus on the digitization and visualization of medieval manuscripts. Thank you. Yes.
7: This has been a really fun panel to, to listen to because it's so <laughs> wide ranging. Um, and so now we've got the medieval, we've got the medieval manuscripts now. Moving, moving on. <laughs> So, um, and I don't think, I don't think I included, sorry, can you all hear me? Okay? Okay, I don't think you included the fact that I'm at the University of Pennsylvania. Yeah. I, I, I think I left that out of my, I did, out I, of my I bio. Didn't to see, I think you gonna
0: assume this audience, will know where the show is. So okay. Perhaps. But in case you don't, right. University <coughs> of Pennsylvania, so
7: we're in my current hometown. So, excuse me, so I am gonna be talking about uh, VizCall, which is a system that we've been working on uh, for about four years to um, model and visualize the physical structure of medieval manuscripts, or collation. So, vizcall visualization, visual visualizing collation. Um, so, uh, what is vizcall? Vizcall is a system for building models of the physical collation of manuscripts and then visualizing them in various ways, so it's not so much a tool as it is a concept that um, is a place for developing tools around that concept. Um, and we envision it as a tool both for, and I and I know that there's bleeding between these two uses, scholarly use. So I am a scholar, I am studying a collection of manuscripts, and I want to use the... Um, or examine in some way how the structure of these manuscripts influences whatever I'm studying in the text and so some examples are um, Alexandra Gillespie's team at the University of Toronto are using this call to collate the Canterbury Tales and then they're, they're they've collated all <laughs> of the Canterbury Tales manuscripts and they're looking at how the texts the various uh, tales are um, you know, exist within those different manuscripts. They're in different orders. Not all of the manuscripts have all of the tales in them. And what does looking at the physical structure of the books tell them about that? Um, Lisa Fagan Davis um, is at Simmons University, and she's also the um, uh, executive director of the Medieval Academy of America. And she's been spending several years reconstructing a missile that was taken apart um, in the early 20th century by Otto Ege, who's a very famous biblioclast. And she's been going around and finding the pieces and putting them back together. And she's been using this call as another way to, to do that. So she's sort of recreating choirs. Um, so that's sort of scholarly use. And then there's um, institutional use. And this is really what I'm focused on at the moment at Penn, because we have this um, project called Bibliotheca Philadelphiensis. This is a clear-funded project to digitize all of the medieval manuscripts in uh, Philadelphia, and as part of that work, we're building models and generating collation formulas out of those models, and then those go in the records, but then we've got these models that we can visualize uh, in other ways later, and we'll take a look in a minute at what what that looks like. <clears throat> so here's our team. Um, it's um, not a big team, and we have never had funding for it except for the team at... Um, the University of Toronto, which is, they're developing their own tools uh, using the Vizcall data model. Um, And so they have money from the Mellon Foundation. Otherwise, we're basically, I guess we're funded by the Schoenberg Institute, because they pay my salary. Um, (laughs) There's myself and I do some script writing and data analysis. Um, We also have a software developer, (laughs) Doug Emery, who works at Sims, Um, Alberto Campagnolo, um, is currently a postdoc at the Library of Congress. He is a book conservator, a digital humanist, um, and he does uh, data analysis. And when we look at the diagrams in a minute, he's the person who developed the SVG that um, controlled the diagrams. And then Connell Tui is a software developer in New Zealand, and he helped with some of the back end tool development as well. So we're sort of a ragtag bunch. Um, building this together. So on the off chance that some of you don't understand what uh, I'm talking about when I say physical collation, um, <laughs> here's a the uh, spine of one of our manuscripts from our collection. And essentially what we're talking about is when the book is made, you've got sheets of paper or parchment. The sheets are laid on top of each other, they are folded, and then they're uh, sewn together to make, to make the book. And so what we're talking about VizCall is how many leaves are there in a choir, how many choirs are there in a book, are there leaves that are missing, are there leaves that are added, are we not sure, and how do they all relate to each other? So that's um, sort of what we're talking about. So it's not textual collation, which sometimes (coughs) confuses people. So what does VizCall do? Um, Well, you have a system from modeling and then visualizing the physical collation manuscript, and how do we do it we provide the data model, and then tools for building the models themselves, and then tools for visualizing um, the models. So the current tool that we have at SIMS for doing this, for building a model is called the Collation Modeler. And so what this looks like is you come in, you say I'm going to make a new manuscript, and right here it says, you, you put in your basic information, then you have number of choirs and leaves per choir. If you have a manuscript that is 20, choirs of eight leaves each. You can do that, and then you're done. Um, That's not usually how it works. So here's just a very brief example. I'm going through the manuscript. I find the center of a choir. I find the end of a choir. It is um, six leaves. So I can come here, and I say, I have one choir. It has six leaves. Um, Then I have my one choir. And then I can... um, come in here, I find the middle of the next choir. This choir has eight leaves. And I create my new choir, one choir of eight leaves. And then you can see um, they're all original, they're all conjoined. Um, If I wanted to, I could mark some as single, if I had single leaves. If they had um, pages that were missing, I could indicate that. Um, And then I go through and I create all of my choirs and then I generate an XML file. Right now, this is how this works. You generate the XML file, and then you can um, apply different processes to it for visualizations. So what kind of visualizations do we have right now? Um, the one that we're using for Bibliotheca Philadelphiensis is um, to generate collation formulas. Of course, you can, you can generate as many formulas as you want. There is no sort of one way to do a manuscript collation formula. Um, unlike printed books, it's sort of all over the place, so you could you could make as many as you want. Um, we happen to use the one that's at the end here, so we have one through nine choirs have ten leaves. The tenth choir has eleven leaf eleven leaves. The eighth one is the one that's been added, so this is the one that goes into our records. Um, we also have two other visualizations. Um, that I'm hoping we can use in bibliophily as part of the output, the final output, when we're putting all the manuscripts online. Um, And that includes diagrams and what we call bifolia view. So here's what that looks like. Um, You've got a diagram uh, in that left column, and you can see that we're showing the bifolia, the outer bifolia, that is leaves eight and 15, they're connected physically. Um, And then you can see that there are two single leaves next, and they've been added, that's why they're dotted like that. Mm. Um, And then we go in, and so the whole thing is like this. And then the bifolia view is where we actually take the digitized images and put them alongside each other. So what you see on the left there is eight verso and 15 recto next to each other. You wouldn't actually see that unless you took the book apart. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a kind of thing that, that we're enabling. And as another example of this, Um, This is uh, the Beauvais missile reconstruction um, that uh, Lisa Fagan Davis has done. So you can see she doesn't have all of her leaves, and all of these leaves are actually located physically in different collections. Um, But she, using catchwords, she's sort of been able to fit them together, and so there is the choir diagram and the the reconstructed images. So um, we're not done. This is just sort of the first version. Um, We're working on our second data model, Data Model 2.0, it is literally almost done, like it's gonna be coming up hopefully early next year, it'll be online and working. What this will enable us to do, it's really exciting, is in addition to just doing the physical construction, um, we're going to have a way to define taxonomies. So let's say you're working in books of hours, and you have 200 books of hours, um, and they all have similar programs of miniatures. You can define the program of miniatures, apply them to each one, and then you can see um, how they move around, going from manuscript to manuscript. That's basically what the group at Toronto is doing with um, the Canterbury Tales. Um, so lists of texts, um, text. You can also do physical things. You can imagine parchment, paper, hair, flesh. Um, it's totally configurable uh, in that regard. We also want to enable more physical, um, sorry, more complex physical structures. So the the idea of sub-choirs where you have a choir that actually has another choir that's sort of been stuck in, usually a bifolia. um, We need to be able to handle that because that happens with some frequency. Um, Also, more people uh, developing tools. Um, The University of Toronto um, has a tool and they're, they're actually going to be launching it very soon. We're continuing to work on our own tools and eventually I would like to be able to reconstruct <laughs> printed sheets um, for early printed books so it's not only for manuscripts. Thank you.
0: Okay. So to start our discussion period, I'm I'm very pleased to introduce one of my uh, intellectual heroes, uh, Meredith McGill, who teaches 19th century American literature and culture at Rutgers University. She co-directs the Black Bibliography Project with Jackie Goldsby from Yale, which is an attempt to use new media to gather and make available reliable information about black authored and published texts from the 19th and 20th centuries.
5: I apologize in advance for my voice. uh, And I heard echoes of coughs, and uh, so we can have solidarity with people with uh, the the cold that's going around. I just want to identify sort of three themes that I saw working through these uh, papers, and then open things up for discussion. Um, It's tremendously exciting to uh, hear these papers juxtaposed, not only because they move us from uh, the medieval period uh, to the present, but also because you can see how bibliographic-oriented Thinkers are thrilled by the capacities of uh, digital technology to help us arrange and assemble aggregates. Um, you know, this morning <coughs> we were learning that the bibliographic tradition goes way, way, way back. Uh, uh, and so scholars have been thinking for a long time about how to think about multiples. Um, so, aggregates, rather, not in, in English departments, we, uh, uh, non bibliographically minded English departments, or in, teachers of English, uh, talk, have this ideal notion of the text. You're always talking about the same text, um, the ideality of the literary text. Uh, but once you, once you bring back the materiality of the text into the question, you've got the problem of multiples. Uh, and so the digital technology really gives us a new tool for thinking, uh, as well as for organizing bibliographic information. But the question that is the question that Elise brought up, the question of scale. <clears throat> it's one thing to be thinking about uh, in sort of mind-bending ways, the, the, the largest of big science and its ecosystem Uh, But uh, our first presentation was really about uh, a personal database, uh, a a um, middle-sized arrangement of bibliographic data, right? Uh, And in fact, that's something that the humanities have done. I think that's an interesting turn in digital humanities, is not to think only about uh, thinking at scale, but how can we carve out of the too much stuff that we have a usable, uh, smaller, mid-sized archive that's still bigger than, that, than the ideal text or pair of texts or our single literary tradition. So I think questions of scale run through all of these presentations and would be interesting to talk about. I mean, incunabula are great because it's, it's, it's that sort of middle-sized project, right? I work on early mass print, that moment when there's too much print to even think about. So I, uh, I'm i interested in these tipping points of scale and, and what projects work and the parameters. Uh, I'm also really interested, it came up, uh, I'm borrowing the phrase from the last talk, we learn by doing this, not just aggregating information doesn't just give us what we know, more of what we know, it actually shows us what we don't know. Uh, And that seems to be one of the most valuable parts of of, uh, working, uh, doing bibliography digitally, uh, is uh, it calls your attention to what we haven't seen before, what we don't know, that corner of the image uh, in Catherine's, uh, um, the, you know, the bicorn hat. Uh, and while you're coding that, you see something else that you would have thought to code, uh, right? Um, so, yeah, a- aggregation scale uh, and the question of how we can surface, how doing digitally oriented bibliography is an opportunity to surface these uh, questions of choice uh, and delimitation uh, and, and, you know, to come up with some kind of language for making clear what we've learned we don't, what's not in our database, um, uh, right, and and what it would mean to have a kind of ethics of um, transparency uh, and also almost like a modesty, right? Uh, As we scale up in the number of things we can handle, how can we uh, most accurately and most precisely talk about what's there and what's not there, and what we've learned, sadly, over many years of work, uh, we're not capturing with our data. So that's my quick pulling of these things together, but they raise so many interesting questions. I'd like to turn things over to you, and I'll just call on you and try to keep a queue if it gets
0: busy. And, and I wonder if it would make <coughs> sense to uh, ask the panelists. We could turn some of these chairs around. Chairs around. So you guys are all over the front. we
5: are all standing aside. Question. Really,
1: to the <coughs> yes. So we've heard about data modeling from Dot. I can't see, you, but I'm sure. I might do it. You <laughs> <here>. <laughs> yeah. Um and there was some really interesting discussions about looking at the ways that um, databases have been structured historically. Um I don't hear from any of the panelists of thinking through how they're structuring their own databases to
5: be aware of the biases and questions that they're asking. Mm. To to structure the databases or even to mark or highlight those limitations. (coughs) Uh,
4: This is a subject that my colleague Bob Kreese has been thinking about a lot. He's a historian of science. And uh, he'd like the the database that we're constructing to reflect some of his own ideas about about the process of science and how it works. In particular, Mm -hmm. he's interested in the notion of uh, of an experiment as a performance, mm. uh, that is the various dimensions of performance: the actors, the props, the funding, the scripts, the audience, the reviews, the sequels, the techniques, the managers, the theater provided by this machine itself, the management of the theater, and so on, would get would get in um, would become an aspect of the database and the entities and the attributes that we choose in, in constructing the database. Mm. Uh, um, this would also mean, of course, that um, uh, that that we would be quite aware of. Of this project as reifying some of his ideas about, about how science works. <coughs> On the one hand, um, it it may provide a broader spread of a broader spread of um, a, a, a broader spread of, uh, of entities and attributes for people to work with. That is, there may be results that people find when they uh, when, when they do searches that they hadn't expected because they don't um, think using his particular angle of thought. Uh, on the other hand, if we're not transparent about the way that we're organizing the database, as you said, an mm. ethics of transparency. You know, we don't want to fall um, uh, uh, into the uh, mistake of having people believe that the the um, uh, uh, people who are t- uh, people who are coming to this a little bit naively, mm. as as we often do when we're historians approaching machines, uh, of believing that um, uh, of, of believing that there isn't a tilt or a politics. To the way this thing is designed, and that the answers that we're receiving are are actual answers that haven't been yeah. arranged in any sort of way. Does anybody else want to
6: respond to that? Very useful questions? question. Yeah. Okay. Well, and the case of are because we're dealing with material that is much more contemporary. It's nineteen eighty-three to ninety-one. <coughs> the two things that we did leave out, which in some ways can be problematic, but also it could be problematic to put them in, and that was uh, sex uh, of the of the gender um, and race. Um, so we were very careful uh, not to include those because, you know, making assumptions about individuals. Um, so, and, and also when we did names, we were very careful about how we... Um, Put those names in, and, and, and for people to um, pull from the entire individual's name. So there were there were complications mm-hmm. <laughs> of doing that, but also being more sensitive to um, the current times and being uh, aware that um, gender is fluid, and so it's um, you know what people's race. So we didn't include those kinds of things, which can be problematic in some ways because sometimes you do want to know uh, who is writing in mm. those particular areas. So, yeah.
5: I did notice you had an alternative name, yes. which is hugely important around the Black Power yeah. era. Yeah, exactly. uh, but that raises the question of multiple names, anonymity, pseudonymy, multiple mm-hmm. pseudonyms, uh, and the ability to both collapse them into one. From one perspective, you want them all to be collatable. Mm-hmm. From another, you want them to be. You know, an anonymity known and anonymity unknown. Anonymity. Uh, are really
6: two different kinds of anonymity. Yeah, for instance, uh at the common that is not that is his name that he chose and, and uh, changed his name. So his earlier scholarship is trying to pull those in and it was a big problem with name mm-hmm. disambiguation period. But uh, yeah. You almost want ambiguation,
5: yeah. too. Everyone <laughs> oh, should to be able to go both ways. Mm. Um, did you suffer that with yeah. the, in the in no, incunables project? We have
3: we have kind of the same um, <coughs> challenge with incunables, particularly when we're looking at provenance evidence. So with the NEI, mm. because I mean, humans as well tended to you know change their name and Latinize their name mm. and change mm. their mm. name like change <coughs> the reading and everything. And we want. When we create our provenance evidence, we have an index of owners and we want every owner to have his or her own record um, and to which all the variants of the names are associated. So if I search for someone, I can always somehow it and manage mm-hmm. to find it. And in terms of like the structure and the so we have three data. One is for provenance evidence, the other is for the text, and the third one is for the images. And I guess that one of the big, of the biggest challenges of our project and the, how those databases were structured is their kind of collaborative nature, mm. which uh, is related to the quantity of data that we have. That is not much, as you yeah. were uh, pointing out before. I mean, are perfect because they are... They are enough to give you, you know, an interesting uh, response, but they're not endless. I they're think. not as 16th century for this Already, <laughs> but 16th century it's over. The situation changes so much. I mean, they're they're a limited number, and they had been cataloged uh, right. very well before, we, I mean, yeah. well, well, uh, before New Year's, before we started the project. Um, but still, I mean, we wanted to gather data from. Different institutions. We wanted a large number of scholars to, you know, contribute with their experience and their knowledge to the databases. And this has been kind of, um, you know, uh, declined in different ways from one database to the other. So for MEI, for instance, we have a list of editors of MEI and a list of institutions contributing to MEI. Each editor and each institution have their own, you know, access codes and they can work on a certain amount of material. They cannot make changes to what okay. the others did, but certain editors can make changes because they are like the super powerful <laughs> editors who can <laughs> touch um, So, and, and this, this is different because then we have the textual database which is a bit more technical and a bit more difficult to cope with. Mm-hmm. So there we have a, you know, smaller number of selected editors. And then we have the images for which we're still kind of trying to figure out how
2: we're gonna do. But I think it's gonna be a, a large contributive process. Yeah, but just wanted to <coughs> that the collaboration is at the basis of our project. We are building as just say, upon what has been built before. I mean the mm. is to see this is the basis for our collecting data because we have already the bibliographical description in all of all these rooms time. As for names, um, NEI is hosted by the CERV, the Consortium of European Research Libraries, and there is a thesaurus there with all names of authors and variants, mm-hmm. so we have always relation to the thesaurus. Uh, bibliographical data is on the basis of our collecting mm-hmm. and adding information on owners. Obviously, owners might have been authors or have played a part in a, uh, editing or writing a new book at the time, but this means that. What can we add is um, an additional value or that I've uh, been collected and creating in libraries in years of working through. Mm-hmm.
4: And in the same way that uh, the page limit that your publisher sets can change some of the ways that you're writing your history. Uh, the, on the one hand, there's the desire to have um, something very fine-grained, but on the other hand, the desire not to have a lot of empty fields, which you okay. have to fill in with something. There are some databases of early modern literature where, uh, for example, there is a, uh, an author you can look up called Anonymous Elizabethan. He's <laughs> <laughs> the author of, yes, hundreds of works and very prolific. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's produced because, um, because of the empty field of the anonymous author yeah. that used to be filled in. So this particular character is created. And that itself reifies the, um, an, an aspect of, uh, of, of literary history, which is the
5: author function. You know, and projected. Project. Yes, mm-hmm. and that gets projected. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. I'm sorry, in the middle of the weekend?
8: Sure. Um, <coughs> uh, so, getting back to this kind of question of scale, maybe from the different side, Catherine, your point about the, uh, to have a, you know digital humanities talk that's about uh, your own work as uh, mm. so one person at work on her on her corpus, I think is really great and really exciting to me as someone who is very comfortable working by myself. <laughs> 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 um, and the, yeah, and so I just, I kind of wanted you to think about and, and, and others to think about, at least I'm sure you have things to say about this too, but, but, but based on kind of the experience, right, digital humanities has sort of always been this thing that required quite a lot of funding, and quite a lot of collaboration, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's been very exciting, I think, for a lot of people. And it is both the money aspect and the collaborative aspect. But is it is there now a turn where these tools are getting to be user friendly enough? Um, you know, I looked at the in vivo uh, license at seventy five dollars. That's not you know the Perhaps MIT has a, has a has a certificate for it, and it would be free to me, right? Um, uh, uh, that's within the realm of possibility for sort of me to start building something on my own. So, a question of scale about about the the um, about the the kind of intellectual laboring.
1: And a lot of this is really practical. Graduate students simply <coughs> don't have access to project funding to produce a dissertation. So, but we're still in an environment where this is in the air, and we're expected people to participating. So, um, that the attention there was really fascinating. I knew other students in my program at Duke, which is uh, the art history program is very book demanding as forward as is the the university, um, who were drowning okay. under their database projects because they were. Uh, micromanaging the database architecture of relational databases on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe doing so without understanding how to build a relational database that could be queried effectively. And then others would need to be recruited to write scripts to be able to reverse engineer their table structure. And mm-hmm. um, so there were some messes and, um, and this was, and I enjoyed learning how to, to create uh, relational databases myself in FileMaker and Access, but knew that you know, I need to finish your dissertation in five or six years, there are these practical requirements of continuation fees. I mean, it's really a question of of practicality, I think, as a graduate student, how are you going to be, try to be a digital humanist with your own dissertation research rather than another faculty project or institutional project? Um, I was able to, um, part of the reason why I used Nvivo QDA software, there has existed for a long time. The social sciences use it very, very heavily, and they have books and books of methodologies for working with it, which are really impressive. And Vivo, Max QDA, and Atlas TI are three examples. Um, and because it's so heavily used by sociologists, most institutions have an institutional license to it. Um, and so I've never paid for it in Vivo. Um, and Vivo. Especially, I won't let them make me pay for it. Now, I'm <laughs> I'm um,
5: struck that your project and Dodd's both are describing things for the first time, as opposed to Becca's and uh, yeah. you know, where you're working with, you know, you're digitizing and making um, digitally manipulable information, authoritative information that's already out there.
8: Yeah.
5: So I, you know, I don't know whether, I, I mean, you're describing the material structure for the first time, even though your manuscripts have been
8: right. Well, some of them, so they've <coughs> been cal- most of
7: them have been cataloged. Right. That we're doing, and they have been you know, those catalog records might include collation formulas, like somebody has looked at them before and mm-hmm. figured that out, but it's putting it in this, sort of doing it in a different way that opens it up for further work, like what are you going to do with a collation formula? You look at the collation formula and you say, oh, well, okay, so <laughs> I have an idea now, sort of, of how it's put together, but mm-hmm. that's different from looking at a diagram, mm-hmm. which right. is why a lot of, um, a lot of bigger projects will not, you you don't, expect to find diagrams in a library catalog, but if you're working, you know, if you have a book that's about a manuscript, there will be a lot in there. And so was sort of to fill that space to sort of how can I, how can we <coughs> do something that's more like what's in a book um, about a particular manuscript, but do it at, s- at scale, going back to scale, right? Yeah. Like, how can we make it work um, like that? So. Um, Yeah, so it's sort of taking something that might have been described, but it's in such a different way that it looks. And and Mm. you do have to work for it. Like um, our first version, we we actually started by saying, let's take collation formulas and parse them and make the visuals. And that didn't work because as I mentioned in my talk, like manuscript collation formulas are all over the map and there was just no way. And so like, let's make it easy to create for somebody to go in and create a model, you can even do it if you have a formula that you can read, you can do it, and it doesn't actually take long. Um. There's a question behind Ryan, yeah.
9: yes. So, it, <coughs> my question comes in part out of the end of the first question, and um, when Elise was talking about all the anonymous Elizabethans. So, that's my period, <laughs> and, and I'm really interested in lost print and the hand press period in general. So, I was wondering. With your databases, how do you or how have you deliberately chosen not to um, build in blank spaces in a way that's mm-hmm. useful to account for the unknown? I know, I knew you had things about this. To account for the unknown, to account for ambiguity, in which originally most databases were like, no, you, there's a field of information you don't want to leave like, the blank. So where's the wiggle room in there? I guess for the things that you're working on.
1: My small database, my classification sheet is full of blank, um, mm-hmm. it's a, it looks like a very, very spotty book. Um, so I have uh, many publishers who are anonymous, and so depending on the period in which I'm working in the conventions for naming mm-hmm. the um, artist and engraver or mm-hmm. lithographer, lithographic printer or, um, or publisher, uh, change rapidly from 1750 to 1850. Mm-hmm. And so those blank spaces are actually something I talk about in the dissertation itself, and I follow them and show them and say these are important conventions of change that um, the bibliographers and everyone at the Connes and Shafts knows really well that they change, but they don't yeah. we have not published on it or mm-hmm. an environment for um, that humanities scholars maybe know how to access. So um, yeah, I like blank space. Yes. For dating too, especially for political cartoons, <coughs> dating this has been exhausting. Yes. Depending on which, if I'm working on regime it's much harder to date them. Than, um, than my early 19th century imagery, um, and so in some cases, I'll be able to to make. I, I've created fields where I have pen of buckets, um, basically. So I would have um, a 1700 to a 1750 field, and I might that would I would understand this as a kind of tentative. So I might have that as a column and then I have a precise date column if I do have a precise date. Oh, okay. And so I can at least try to consider mm-hmm. them chronologically when I don't have an exact mm-hmm. date and, and date them basically using other contextual information.
7: Mm-hmm. This call is sort of, there's so much, because, because of the way, the way it sort of works, you've got, the ver- you've got the basics, which is like, here's a manuscript and the manuscript has numbers of choirs and then the choirs have leaves. So all of that is really straightforward, and there's there is some in the second um, data model. There's we're building in room for uncertainty, so you'd be able to say, I know there's a leaf here, but I'm not sure if it's in this choir or in this choir, and so we'll be able to do that. So that's sort of mm-hmm. blankish, I guess. But then there's the bigger the bigger issue when we when we come into you know the next version where people will be able to. Um, Create taxonomies and say I'm interested in the texts, here's my list of texts and I'm going to examine these texts across these sets of manuscripts. And when we first started thinking about this is something that we could do, (coughs) we started sitting down with people and saying what would you want to do? And everybody wants to do something else, right? So we we want text and we want images and we're interested in in, um, hair and flesh side and we're interested in watermarks and all of this stuff, and it was like we, we just decided we're not even gonna, we're not, we as the, as the sort of project developers, we're not gonna think about that. So it's all configurable um, by project. So we're basically taking that decision and passing it along. So if you want to use Vizcall in your project, um, so it's it's a little bit different in that mm-hmm. it's we're not providing you with data we're providing you with structure where you put your own data in mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. and then those decisions are up to you and you might you might still end up with a lot of blanks but um, mm-hmm. but but maybe not. I don't
2: know. Well, we um, we like to add something in NEI when we describe the funeral, funeral were printed without initials. We often the initials or publications to be added to the book. And so we recall every time there is no evidence of use or we have, there is no publication at all. So lots of blanks in there. Also, we are categorizing anonymous owners because mm. we are using marginal notes to identify maybe a period of time, a place where the book was used, but we no name in there. But mm. you can say, okay, this is a handwriting from Germany, late 15th century. So we are creating anonymous going from a range. Uh, time. This is anonymous use of the book. Lots of different anonymous owners. One of
9: the, I mean, part of my question of, in part came out of thinking about how the, the GW is incomplete. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. the the good old granddaddy of um, bibliography, descriptive bibliography of is super complete for the first half of the alphabet.
2: No, no, no. And then of, no, no. it's still in
9: process for the second half, so I sort of wonder, no, like, there's something
2: that it's not. The, the BDOF is complete, because it's an, in ISTC. The International Short Title right. Catalog, we call all editions at the time. GW provides a more detailed description on typographical data. Right, mm. so
9: typographical data is only available for part of the
2: body of work. Yes, that you are. So right. yes. Mm. Typographical in terms of what kind of types, <laughs> what kind of measurements, and these kind of things. This is Well, GW is adding to ISCC, but the additions (laughs) are there. So (laughs) you guys are
9: tracking that stuff, right?
3: So Uh, how are you saying? Not really. We're focused with MEI. We're starting from bibliographical, and therefore typographical information, if one wants, from what is there. But we are uh, adding <coughs> private information on provenance. So we have with every copy of one of the editions, which is already catalogued in the Ingenabula title catalog or in Kazan catalog, um, how every copy um, <coughs> traveled from the moment it was printed up to the present days. So it's kind of, we, we know that a certain copy had certain bibliographic, you know, Features and was part of that tradition, and this is what we know. But who used it? Where the book was? Uh, how it was annotated? How the text was read? Uh, what? A, uh, uh, how much did it cost? So if it was sold or bought by someone, this is not described mm-hmm. in the international It pertains <coughs> to the provenance, and it's what we are doing. To so, true, mm-hmm. yeah, no. matter Oh,
4: to turn the subject 10 degrees to metadata it's been interesting to watch the spread of folksonomy archives yeah. that is hashtags and mm-hmm. the hashtag for this se- session is speed data in, by the way oh, <laughs> um, <man. it's> been <laughs> interesting to watch that watch that spread as a, as a, as a kind of um, uh, engagement on a massive scale with the impossibility of um, getting every you know there are there are uh, there are um, Uh, impossibly narrow, you know, categories created by hashtags, which are a kind of theatrical aside that express the impossibility Mm -hmm. of getting every category that you would want in order to, you know, organize... So, you know, in narratological terms, every database is a tragic database, (laughs) (laughs) but (laughs) folksonomy (laughs) archives (laughs) (laughs) archives are satirical databases, because they're an expression of the impossibility of getting one or even a million master narratives that would cover this kind of information, these texts that we handle. you
5: are trying to get in on this. I just,
0: I wanted to pick up on what seems like a theme that's coming out. it's in all the papers but there's a few specific examples which is about the kind of reconfigurations of the materials that you're all talking about so I mean I first started thinking about that with Catherine's presentation where you you're tagging these particular kinds of images and then you can sort of you know, reassemble your collection on the fly to sort of just, which kind of Mm -hmm. painter is it again that you kept pointing us to? The shop sign painter. The shop sign painter. And all of a sudden you've got all the shop sign painters sort of collected in one place in a way that one imagines they probably haven't been in the physical archive, right? Um, And then the same with your image search, right? So we can sort of clip out this little bit of image and then we can do this analysis that then Shows us yeah. all the images that maybe were you know from the same block or that sort of resemble. I, w- I wasn't exactly clear if you know that they're all the same block or it's just that they share characteristics, which you can. Uh, that, right?
3: the, the the image search, uh, which is based just on machine learning yeah. and on um, you know automatic retrieval, will give you back all the impressions made from the same block. Then you can combine this with. Uh, metadata search where you can search for all the images, I don't know, which contain a wolf or which contain Mm. a woman and then you can, you know, browse through them and then you can pick one and see how many times that particular block has been used and by which printers and so this allows you to do kind of you know, cross
0: research. So here too though, you're like clipping from all these, right? And then putting all these clippings together uh, how, uh, Ellen Gruber-Garvey has this word, morselized information, which I love, I use all the time, sort of morselizing it. And then in your case, you can like disassemble the books mm. in a way that you wouldn't ever with the <laughs> actual yeah. books, right? Or, as with the last example, you can reassemble a book that doesn't exist anymore, yeah. right? And we're, so there's just all of these ways in which the information is getting put back together, taken apart, reconfigured. And I just wonder if folks have a kind of like reflection on how how that affects the the research process or what we can say about these materials or our bibliography.
2: It does affect a lot. Mm. Because I before I started working with this project, I I started a particular period of time and production, I was looking also at the images. And I had to use my eyes Mm. and I had to use bibliography to compare images and to say, okay, this is imitation, this is maybe the same block where and where with these two. You can say this with more precision and looking at a um, certain amount of production. So you can go and coming back with more information on who used this material and when and making inferences on this and saying, okay, this was a style, an aesthetic style, or it was made for purpose, and so on. This just for the images. Well, I'd like to add something about the uh, working by your own. And i like to highlight the fact that our databases are open to contribution, which means that if our scholars who have been working on, in Canabula or illustrating um, decoration in Cunabula, we can reuse this information and put that in mm. the database and value personal and individual works. And when you put all this uh, knowledge together, you have an additional value of what you know about time. We are trying to explore who printed texts in the 15th century, who transferred texts from manuscripts into printed books, and why. We so are trying to track back who may uh, gave funds to do this, who want to invest in this and, and this kind of thing. But when you add information to different uh, sources, which is also bibliographical sources, literature, then you find out more information on what you thought you knew already. Actually, we are trying to explore a period of time when everything changed in terms of distribution of knowledge.
3: Um, there was one thing that I wanted to add, uh, I mean, uh, relating to your previous question. That was, I don't know if Catherine has the same, um, impression while working in images um the thing is that part of my work since i'm the person in charge for the 15 central book trade of the images database is collecting a large number of images and tagging them renaming them making them you know searchable, (coughs) and including feeding them to the database uh but i always have the impression that this i mean this makes the the procedure of accessing the material Mm -hmm. retrieving the material and doing research much more quick and much more easy to scholars. But this doesn't really answer your research questions. So, I mean, we still need humans uh, who have you know interesting research questions who can access the databases and use them and, and tell us. I mean, for me, it was a kind of peculiar case because my my PhD is trying to answer some of those questions relating to a particular you know iconographic tradition. So I was both you know creating the tool and using yeah. it and, and researching it. And, and this what this is what always <coughs> makes me think that I mean the tool itself it can be as perfect as we want, as you know, refined as we want, and as up to date as we want. But I mean, it, it won't.
5: It strikes me that your projects all create new questions, uh, which is interesting. I mean, I was struck by the the old periodization of the regime revolution, your tripartite periodization. I mean, I imagine people usually just begin with the OSEAN regime and stay inside it rather than track across, or, or all these new texts that you guys are throwing up there that are, will change uh, the way people think about the period, right? Uh, it's really the new questions that seem most important. Well,
6: uh, uh, and for us, we did choose these two black bibliograph- bibliographers primarily because one is dealing <coughs> with a period, the 50s, uh, and trying to show that uh, these uh, African and African American writers are doing really scholarly writings and scholarly works, while in, in the case of uh, 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 Paul his writings uh, and his bibliographies are pulling in not just um, uh, uh, African and African American scholars, he's pulling in places, uh, conferences and dissertations. And, and and so one of the things that we wanted to show was what has been the trajectory of African American scholarship, African scholarship, and how does it fit into our knowledge of, of, of the vast number, of the, you know, the vast amount of writings that are out there that haven't been acknowledged mm-hmm. and are not uh, a part of the canon. And also what we were looking at is what dropped off yeah, and yeah, what yeah, is now, is it, you know, yeah. and, 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 <coughs> and how did these subject areas change? when well, we're supposed
5: to go to so we have one it. last question. Yep. All oh. right, in the back.
0: Sorry, I was looking at
5: this. Quick. <laughs> <I was in laughs> it's frozen. in the back. <laughs> yeah.
6: For all of you using digital or tools, or digital software,
5: how archivable are your products? Oh. Do you the Sustainability. <laughs> <to be here laughs> Will Great it be around
4: over the long term or or not? And how are you thinking about? your products and, and, and uh, uh, you know, whether it's an XML file or it's vivo uh, what is the long-term prognosis for mm-hmm. So
1: mm-hmm. my main concern with Vivo is was whether it wasn't just what I could get into it, but whether I could get it back out again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd experimented with mm-hmm. other, um, other softwares that I couldn't get my research back out of again, so they just yeah. kind of got trashed um, pretty quickly. Um, with this, um, with this software, I can I can export um, the result of any query as a CSV. So I can run a kind of, um, and I have actually run and crashed my computer several times running a, a query that just kind of asks me to throw back everything I did back at myself. Um, that was a terrible idea. But I do manage to get it out of the software eventually, um, and could save it as a spreadsheet or a mm-hmm. CSV. Um, and then from there, if I can partner with somebody that can do more with it, I have all of these links that I've built between an object and a category that can be returned back to me. And that's it's just that relationship I need. Object one, you know, who did I assign as author? Did I say it had a donkey in it? What region was a donkey in you know? and I can, I can pull that all back out again. Um, and I'm glad that I can because I would like to use that as a lingua franca to translate into something, translated into something that I can share online, um, and it can be interpolated at some similar level of depth to what I've been able to do at home. Um, so I can get it back out, and ostensibly somebody could, could try to model through that, and hopefully our
4: Sure. I think as long as you use technology that's really
5: commonplace, I think we're lucky we're in a position now, unlike when like, I'm like I started on this, where
6: we would have, I remember when the first uh, uh, streaming software was available for the web, there were a huge, amount of products. You choose from, you had to pay a lot of money for it.
4: Then it came down to where the industry narrowed it to something that became standard. And so as long as I think we're using something that's very standard, the new technologies will build them to pull that
5: information from those because it's commercially commercial mm-hmm. Yeah, I think our main strength here <coughs> with
1: the NDPO especially is that it, they don't rely on the humanities for its survival. I no. <laughs> <Yeah, you>, uh, <coughs> always those things. I'm
2: working on stuff too where I'm all by myself. And, yeah. and
3: some of these softwares are so complex, you just want to pull your out.
5: But I, you know the badging on your slides, you've got Oxford, you've got, I mean, that <coughs> that's another way to go, right, with these large funded projects with institutions that we hope will survive. When yes, to but it the I eyes. It's closed. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Well, well, I think I, think I, have have a, yeah, yeah. I am an architect. Yeah, so absolutely making sure we can the Well, friend, our databases are hosted. the eyes, by the which is the consortium of the Research Searchlight for the purpose, to be hosted and maintained over time because there are data from a lot of libraries, yeah. and it is not uh, just with the project or for the project. Also, the, the other database the thing is texting, it is conceived to have a, a digital bibliography, which has to be complete and to be available to everyone. I want to highlight the fact that all our data is available to the scholars, to contribute for a part, but also to use it. So we want to be open and as well on open access software has been developed in Göttingen and AI and in Oxford, so mm. this is conceived to be available to everyone. I mean, right. <laughs> this is the idea. I think we've run out
5: of time. Thank you for a wonderful panel. Woo-hoo!